Mentally Unscripted, Episode 38, Opportunity Cost is Screwing Up Your Life. All right, welcome back to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. The podcast is devoted to helping you improve your thinking and your communication. As always, I am Paul, and I'm here with the man who's conquering all the logical fallacies that exist on the planet, Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm good. Just uh, having some fun following some of the news that has come out recently. Uh, did you catch the Project Veritas thing about the HHS whistleblower? Or have I'm you caught completely any? Completely in the dark on that one. What what happened? I don't know. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, but the video, okay. I've got the video, <laughs> I've got the video saved on uh, Odyssey. All right. I'm interested in in watching that. And then uh, also, I heard that uh, Sussman or someone like that. I can't remember his name. Uh, an attorney that was affiliated with the Clintons that worked for Perkins Coey is now in trouble for lying about the whole Trump Russiagate thing. Uh, so Ooh, that's been pretty interesting. That's uh, that just, is pretty interesting. Yeah, just hearing how the whole thing was just all put together, and and this is apparently just one small part of the Trump Russiagate thing. Um, it's not the entire thing, but it's something to do with uh, the Trump servers pinging Russian servers. And they were. Oh, we're getting technical using, here. Yeah. Um, but he was apparently part of the whole cabal or, or the conspiracy to try to use that as part of the reason to frame Trump for the whole Russiagate thing. So all pretty interesting <laughs> stuff. That is, that is pretty interesting. I subscribe to Matt Taibbi's Substack newsletter, which uh, I think if, if anybody's looking for an interesting voice on all things current, he is a, is a terrific person to listen to. And he is... I guess the the authority that I have when it comes to Russiagate, I, I did see that he was tweeting out a bunch of points about the fact that it's been misreported time and time again, and people can't seem to get their head around the fact that uh, the Russiagate started with the dossier that was commissioned by the Clintons, the the, the Clinton campaign, and uh, it's it's a fascinating sort of story. I know we haven't really talked about it other than kind of alluding to it at times, but should we really be surprised that we're, we're learning new details about what's happening on a story that proved to be completely misconstrued and misunderstood? I feel like it's 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 kind of a microcosm of everywhere where we stand today on nearly every single topic. Yeah, I imagine that we're going to be having tidbits dribbled out over the, for the next for years for decades uh, yeah. it's, it's probably something that's not going to die what i always found interesting about it is i think the media they tried to portray this as a as a left versus right thing or as a trump versus non-trump thing but when you look at folks like Mac, matt taibbi and um, aaron mate has done tons of great reporting on this um glenn greenwald right these are all liberal reporters but they're not beholden right. to any narrative. And when you have that many journalists with those credentials who are not Trump fans still coming out and calling this out as BS, you have to, that means something. I mean, when you talk about authority <laughs> and credibility, I mean, it means something. So uh, yeah, there's, it was always an amazing story to me. And one that yeah. I think is just, it's, it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Wait, you know, well, at least every, every reporter's got a, right. got a, uh, a present under the Christmas tree, I guess. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it came from Russia. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking forward. I'm sure Taibbi's going to probably write something about that, or he's going to talk about it on uh, Useful Idiots podcast. 
Um, I would, I would hope so. I'm sure it's going to be coming. Um, And I also heard, I was listening to the propaganda report and apparently I haven't watched this yet, but apparently CNN had some, some, you know, expert authority, whatever you want to call them on. And they were talking about the four words that we use a lot, which is do your own research is now a a bad thing. We're, it's it's the sign of being the enemy. We're not supposed to do our own research anymore. So I'm going to see if I can dig up that clip. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And like I said, I haven't watched it. I'm just going off of what they were saying on the propaganda report, but it, it sounded pretty. Well, well, this is, this is a very interesting topic. And I, I know today we're, we're going to be talking about something else, but uh, I listened to Sam Harris give his AMA number 18, maybe. And he, before he answered the questions, he went through a discussion or description of how he feels about the current state of affairs and how he thinks that we're not really focused on some of the grand aspects of our society and really harnessing everything that's available to us from science and understanding and solving big problems. And then he talked about this idea of where we get our information and the fact that we don't have any trust at all anymore in credible sources. And he used this analogy in and I'm, I'm going to summarize it as best I can, but it was, he said, you know, if I've got a, a plane mechanic who is just going to take any other parts from online, uh, including Etsy and eBay and any of these other places, and they're going to trust all these different places for where they get their parts. And, and he, I think he mentioned that as part of an airplane, right? Because obviously he's, he's raising the, the level of risk, right? That this idea that we would get into these these tubes that fly over the sky with parts that we can't really trust and how everyone just seems comfortable with that. They're all, they're all finding their own uh, mechanics and their own part supplier. And I found it interesting and I was trying to ask myself, is that really a great analogy of what we're going through? Because you know, I'll contrast that with a different conversation I listened to uh, that I mentioned uh, before we started the, the cast, uh, which was Lex Friedman interviewing a man named Douglas Douglas Lennart, or Leonard, who is the CEO of Psyche, which is an artificial intelligence company. And they talked about this idea of the, the best and worst parts of the internet. And, and one of them took the side, well, the internet's been just atrocious for disseminating all this information, this bad information, and it amplifies false narratives and, and fake news. And then uh, uh, Lex mentioned, well, well, that may be true in places where I'm from, You know, being raised in the Soviet Union and having that as my background. We now have a tool to fight against the uh, authorities who are going to tell us that there's only one story. And so I'm still, I guess where I land on this is I still think that there's there's pristine beauty and, and righteousness, if you will, in having information at our fingertips. And the idea that we would s- supposedly not be able to go find our information is is off the table. I mean, it's just off the table in my mind, the idea that I have to trust an authority. And I, I'm not sure, I don't want to say that that's exactly what Sam Harris is saying. I think more of his point would be that we should be selective in the sources and that some sources are more credible than others. And there's a, there's some truth there. There's another side of it that I don't think he's willing to explore and people of that mindset aren't willing to explore that when you've been lied to as much as we have, and we just take the pandemic as an example, where what what happened with the origins of this virus is just a great, great question to ask. What was our role as a government supporting this type of research? Did we just make some mistakes in in how we handled this this uh, this pandemic and maybe even handling the research going into it? We make mistakes all the time. 
but we're not honest about it and you destroy credibility. When you destroy credibility, well, then how am I supposed to know who the authority is? Exactly. And I don't know. And when an authority loses credibility, they have nothing left but brute force. And I think we're seeing that we're, we're heading in that direction. At least it looks like we are when people aren't going to listen to the government anymore. The government is just going to have to start forcing people to do what it wants them to do. Right. Someone can't remember who it was, someone from the FDA or something. Apparently this was just a joke, but they were talking about, they're just going to have to start shooting people with blow darts to get them to start taking the vaccine. And it, it apparently was said tongue in cheek, like I said, but the fact that somebody would even go there and think that that was something viable is questionable. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully it was all just a huge joke and nobody was really <laughs> serious about it, but that's, you know, the, that's where we're getting is that we're, we've got people saying stuff like that. That is, uh, unfortunately where we're headed, but we're, we're not there yet. And I, I think we, we don't want our audience to sit here and get depressed as they listen to our conversations, because there, there's plenty of reasons to be hopeful. And, um, uh, there's, uh, I think this actually brings us back to the topic we're talking about today, which is opportunity cost, right? Which is, I could even frame this conversation about what we're covering and the information that we consume and the cost of not not looking at other information as a as an examination of opportunity cost. So, but wh- why don't we just dig into it? Because I think it's a fascinating topic and and one that's a little deceptive in a lot of ways. Um, it so, is. And yeah, sorry, just to jump in there. And I mean, when we talk about doing your own research, I think opportunity cost is is actually a good topic um, because it it does involve doing more research or, or second order thinking. So yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. So you wrote a great article on opportunity costs. It's up on your uh, up on your blog on on strength and reason. So there's infinite topics you could cover. Why did you decide to cover opportunity cost? I think it's one of the most it's one of the best mental models you can use to help improve your decision making. And my thinking is if you don't have all the information, then your judgment or your decisions are going to suffer. And opportunity cost is that mental model that you use. Like I said, it's a second order thinking technique that helps you uncover more information to just better inform your decisions. And I think people, as we talk about it, I think people will see what we're talking about. Yeah. Essentially what it is, is that we fail to recognize opportunity costs in a lot of cases when we're trying to decide what to do or when we're coming to some sort of a judgment. And so when we bring opportunity costs into the equation, it just brings more context to the decision and will hopefully help us make a better decision. Uh, absolutely. And I, I, to me, it's the unseen cost of our, of our decisions and that a lot of people don't make. And, and I've actually found it to be, a, a when you talked about the one of the more powerful mental models, I really like the idea of doing uh, playing games in my head of what could have been, what, what could be. And opportunity cost is always in the background. And you know, I know on our podcast, we've talked about a whole host of historical events from Afghanistan, the Iraq war. Uh, recently, I've always thought about, well, what were the opportunity costs of us pursuing those activities and not others? And uh, when that happened, I'm coming back to where did this idea even come from? I, I think I initially learned it in economics, uh, going all the way back to high school. So it's it's been with me a long time, but I think it took a while to internalize. So I, I want to read just uh, what I had taken from your, your post, which I thought was a good summation of what you had here. Rational decision-making requires us to consider the trade-offs and opportunity costs of our choices. Our decisions have two types of costs, explicit and implicit. Explicit costs are readily apparent, so they're, they're easy to identify. It's when we overlook the less apparent implicit costs that we make poor decisions. 
Opportunity cost is a second order thinking technique that helps us examine a decision's implicit cost. And I I think that's just a it's a it's a great way of looking at it. The fact that I think you said it like we have to examine all the cost of our decisions. And we we've talked about it in different casts about the idea when not all decisions are, are created equal. Some are harder to reverse, other ones have just bigger implications and you care more about them. But there, there's always an opportunity cost to it, um, but definitely something to keep in mind when you're making big life decisions, buying a house, uh, what you're going to do with a job or career or even even a relationship, I think are, are really good places to, to start or, or to consider when you're making those decisions. So why, why do you think people struggle with accounting for opportunity costs and even thinking about opportunity costs when they're making decisions? Like you said, they're largely unseen costs, or maybe unseen isn't the best word, but they're costs that largely are not directly associated with your choice. So if you have, you know, if you have the choice to go out with your friends, you may think that the cost is just is nothing more than the than the money you're gonna spend that night, the money you're gonna spend, you know, buying drinks or getting dinner or whatever. And then you'll judge the decision based on that. But the other part of the cost, and, and that would be the explicit cost, right? That's the one that's really, that's the scene, that's the apparent cost. But what you also have to factor into your decision is the benefit that you would get from all the things that you couldn't do if you went out with your friends. So say you had a, an exam coming up, you could have stayed home and studied, and the benefit from that would have been a better grade on the exam, and you're potentially giving that up by going out with your friends. So you have to factor mm. that into the cost. And if you stay home, then the benefit that you get is the better grade. And you're also getting the benefit of saving some money, but then you're 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 losing out on time with your friends and time to relax mm-hmm. and to to build a social network. Because they're largely unseen, we just we don't consider them. We don't we don't sit down to take a minute and say, okay, now what what are the wider impacts of my decision? And that's why I associate them with second order thinking. And um, I actually got that idea from Farm Street. Um, Shane Parrish over there, he is, he associated it with second order thinking too. But second order thinking is that that's when you move into the more complex thinking. It's the it's the down the, down the road benefits and costs that aren't going to be immediately apparent from your decision. Mm-hmm. That's where the idea. So the idea of the explicit and implicit costs. The explicit costs. Those are the readily apparent costs. The implicit costs are the benefits. Uh, that you're giving up by not making mm-hmm. by making the decision that you are, and I don't know if I explained that very well. <laughs> I think you did. I mean, it's it's funny because in some ways it sounds like a really simple concept. This idea that there's there's a benefit to, to you you have a decision. There's a trade off between at least two outcomes. Right. One of them is that I go out with my friends and I have a few drinks and I don't study. One uh, one is that I stay in tonight and I do study for the exam that's tomorrow. Right. There's a benefit in both cases. One, I get friendship and I get enjoyment and leisure out of going out. One, I have a better chance of getting that grade uh, that that I want. And right there, it's implied that there's a trade-off, right? And and I, I did find this quote, uh, I think it was from Farm Street by Thomas Sowell, uh, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. So there's an implicit realization that no matter what your decision is, that there are there, it's, it's, there's a trade-off that's always going to be made. And the the idea is that I think it lines back up to, and it, it comes back to this idea of scarcity, which is sort of the how I think of economics. I think the definition I had was the idea that economics is the study of how we allocate limited resources to unlimited wants, right? So the, the first part of that limited resources implies that there's some level of scarcity. And 
you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I talk to people, they're especially at certain states, they're they're going to say, "Well, there's not really scarcity." I you'll say things, "Well, I have more time," or "I have more energy," or "I you know there's there's some other way in which I could deal with that." So the scenario that you gave earlier about, "Well, I could study," or "I could go out with friends," maybe they'll make this this bet with themselves. Well, I'm only going to go out for one beer, right? And then, and then I'll be back, and I'll have I'll have plenty of time to study when I get back, right? Totally minimizing the fact that their the, their mental faculties won't be as strong, and that they're they're probably better primed to have a second and third beer once they're outside having a good time. The idea of studying isn't isn't as important, right? And then you know the opposite's true as well, right? I mean, you, you tell yourself, well, "I'm only going to study for an hour, and then I'll then I'll go out." Well, that hour passes, and you're thinking, "Gosh, you know, now now it's getting a little bit later. I've only got a few more pages. I'm just going to keep on reading." You got a little bit of that momentum working for you, right? I feel like scarcity as a concept is hard for people to. They, they don't think of their time necessarily or some of their other resources in sort of scarce and finite ways. So I feel like that's one area where people, when, when you talk to them about these trade-offs, they're not necessarily thinking about that. It, do you think that there's some merit to that? Yeah, definitely. Especially since we're moving into a world where politicians and the media want you to believe that scarcity is not a thing. They want you to believe that there's abundance everywhere that we mm-hmm. can have free healthcare, free education, free everything, and that we don't have to make any trade-offs for it. And here's the thing, though, is that every decision you make involves a trade-off. Even if you just go out for one beer and then you go home and study, the trade-off is that if you're out for an hour, that's one hour, one less hour that you had to study. And then, like you mm-hmm. said, you, you could also possibly, that one beer maybe will interfere with your sleep, interfere with your ability to retain information so that the next morning you're not as not as primed and as sharp as you could have been. No matter what you do, there's going to be a trade-off because Mm -hmm. whether it's time, whether it's some other resource, scarcity is a thing. We can't get away from it. And there's always going to be costs somewhere. And the better we are at finding those costs, then the better your decision-making is going to be. And it's Mm -hmm. the old saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's (laughs) trite. It's a cliche, but it's true. Somebody's got to pay for it somewhere. So free education, right? Somebody's paying for it somewhere, whether it's coming through taxes, the people, um, whether it is coming through uh, increased education costs, because the schools now know that they've got an unlimited source of funding, a decline or yeah, decline in the quality of the education, because schools now have so many students coming in that they have to hire subpar professors. They have to set up degree programs that are not as difficult to get through. There's costs. Again, with free education, you could have people going to college who maybe would be better off going to a trade school and learning how to become an electrician or a plumber or something like that. There's always a cost. You just have to you have to sit down and use your imagination and think about it. Like we say, get into that second order frame of thinking and, and look mm-hmm. beyond. My mom used to say when I was little, like she's, I would always say, you got to look beyond the tip of your nose. <laughs> I like that. The world isn't just you, right? It's it's everyone. Right. So the decisions you make, there's costs that you're incurring, but then there's costs that are rippling out into the the wider world. Yeah. No, I I think that is the it's it's if if it's a law or if it's an observation, and we don't want to call it a law because of scientific notation of what a law is. It feels like it's it's a it's a boundary that we're always faced with, and that it, as long as you as long as you recognize that the the Earth works uh, off of certain rules, and our universe works off of certain rules, and then even our societal interactions work off of certain rules, then you have to accept that certain laws like this exist. And I, and I I ran a little experiment 
experiment in my head. I was asking myself, okay, so what happens if you don't have, you have abundant resources, you have abundance of whatever resource you're having to make a trade-off with. So if the currency is time, do you ever have an abundance of time? And you know, the, the, the way I was thinking about it was like, okay, well, what about energy? And we think about the sun and I hear a lot of people say, well, the sun's endless. Well, that's actually not true in the, the most, um, exact sense, right? The sun had a starting point where it erupted and energy began. It's going to shine for billions of years, maybe trillions. I don't know the exact number. It's a long time. And then at some point it will die off, right? So it actually isn't like other resources in the world is finite, right? Uh, It's just measured by our own scale. It seems abundant. So then you start asking myself, are there actually resources out there that are truly abundant, that are infinite in nature? And if they are there, they're not the ones that we usually have to make a decision off of, right? They're not the currency that we have to exchange between two ideas. I think there's a, there's a safety in knowing that there is that trade-off, right? It's a good heuristic to apply in almost every situation to say, okay, no, you know, I don't care what anybody's offering. I don't care what anybody's saying that we don't have to make these decisions. We don't have abundance. Now, where I think there is a difference is where we see technological change and innovation. There, where you have people like Peter, sorry, Peter Thiel talks a lot about this in his book, Zero to One. I have it on my shelf, so it just came to mind. This idea of how do we actually create abundance? And it's it's really it's it's almost a mirage a little bit because we're not actually creating abundance. We're changing the boundaries that we have to create more from less, but we're not actually going to create something from nothing. That's not going to happen, right? That would imply that there is just pure abundance. No, we're at, but we are going to be able to do through mechanization, automation, uh, new sources of energy. Yeah, we can create a lot more and create a, a massive amount of abundance, but that doesn't imply that there aren't trade-offs. So I, I think I think we probably both agree that there's, you know, it's a pretty good law to apply, right? I, I don't know. Do you have any ideas of abundance that, are you thinking about abundance differently than I am? Say it that way. No, I think you're right. And I think a lot of it depends on perspective. So the energy from the sun is not unlimited, but it might as well be as far as we're concerned, because on our scale, it is unlimited. But then mm-hmm. the question comes in is our ability to use that energy is limited based off of scarcity because we only mm-hmm. have so many, we can only build so many solar panels. We only have the equipment and the resources to build so many solar panels and to build so many batteries to store that energy. And when we're putting those scarce resources towards harnessing this, harnessing the sun's energy, then maybe we're taking those resources away from nuclear power or from just building something else. So there's still choices involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, when you say, yeah, the sun is an unlimited source of energy, I mean, that's great, but we're still limited in how much of that energy we can capture and use. So this was the question that we were talking about last week when we were talking about Bill or a couple weeks ago. We're actually recording this the next week, but I don't think it's going to air for a couple of weeks. But the Bill Gates book, it's great that there's all these innovations and new technologies, these new green technologies coming out that are going to help us be more efficient and pollute less and have lower emissions. But we have to ask ourselves the question is, is putting all of our energy and resources and money into developing those technologies, is that the best thing to do right now? Or is there something better? And I don't know that right. we're really doing that calculation. And it's great for the businesses that are in the green tech industry, because when they generate that fear, then that's going to make people think that we need to throw money into that industry and come up with solutions at all costs. But who's t- who's taking a step back and saying, well, is that money better spent somewhere else? Right. 
Well, and, and you, what you've done is you've gone into the, uh, an area I wanted to talk about, which I'm, I'm thinking of opportunity costs in the wild. And, you know, we can talk, we talked about an example that's very much a personal one about studying versus going out with your friends. And then you have ones that I think uh, are very relevant and they're often talked about for more of a textbook economics cost of investments, right? The investment uh, expense of putting money and effort and time towards one technology over another. This is where I find people really don't want to do the work. And we, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about this idea of do your own research. There's power in doing your own thinking too. The idea of green is really, it, it, it really gets into the meat of this problem, right? Because you can have a lot of people that want to have a very clean environment, which, which comes down to very little pollution, minimal pollution, clean water, clean air, clean, la- clean landscape. And then you get to the next level of talking about areas there where people aren't necessarily in agreement, the amount of carbon that we have to have in our atmosphere. And then you get into the next area, which is, well, how do we actually deal with the area that we dispute? And and there's there's going to be disputes across that entire paradigm. But then once you start, so you, you're already building a friction as you go, right? Then you get into, well, we got to solve for something. And what you find, at least what I seem to observe, is that you, you've built up this friction which then starts making you move towards solutions that, that are biased towards one or another versus actually trying to come to more of a holistic view. So you minimize some of these op- opportunity costs. And we seem to see this all the time in our political dialogue, right? Where you have somebody who's very much saying, okay, well, we got we to gotta decarbonize. And then they get into all of the technologies that they're thinking about uh, that are being promoted to them, like wind and solar. And you ask them about the cost of taking those minerals out of the ground getting a full allocation for what it costs to to build that, have a reliance on a trading partner like China, which I think produces over 90% of solar panels today. And then the recycling programs that you have to have for the solar and the wind. And you compare that to an investment in, let's say, nuclear or even not doing anything. It's a difficult calculus for a lot of people, right? It's a difficult comparison point because it you know not all the costs are equal. How you have to mine for the, the cost of the, the minerals that you need into the solar panels and to the, the, the wind farms, that's going to be very different uh, than the work that you have to do for a nuclear power plant, which of course is going to have some kind of offsetting pollution, right? The the burnt cells, fuel cells. People don't like to do that. I, I, I think it's it's really, it's, it's difficult. So that friction makes it easier to ignore the opportunity cost to really focus on this. It's, it's being biased towards just having a solution rather than doing the analysis. I mean, you, you talk about the idea of explicit and implicit cost, the implicit cost being a lot of what you're not seeing. I, I feel like a lot of people just want to ignore the implicit cost, especially for some of these big time decisions. It sounds like it's almost too much work. Well, there's that because someone who's creative enough and imaginative enough could sit there and come up with costs all day long. So at some point you have to say, this is not likely going to happen or this cost is just too minimal. So when you when you look at the concept of opportunity costs, I think a lot of people think that the opportunity cost is everything that you're giving up, but it's actually just the benefit that you would get from the next best choice. Mm-hmm. That's the way we should look at opportunity costs. So if you have a choice between doing 10 different things and you choose to go to the movies with your friends, the next best choice may have been staying home to study. The next best choice after that may have been going out for a jog. Next best choice after that might have been, I don't know, building a new shelf or bookcase or something. So there's choices down the line, but Mm -hmm. the opportunity cost is just the cost that you're giving or the benefit that you're giving up from the next best choice. 
So the opportunity mm. cost of going out with your friends is the potentially higher grade that you would have gotten. And even that, you know, we keep saying it's the potentially higher grade. I mean, there's no guarantee that staying home to study would have gotten you a higher grade. It likely right. would have, but we don't know for sure. That's where confirmation bias can come in. Because remember, we said part of confirmation bias is in how you interpret information and then how you seek out information. So you can discount disconfirming evidence that would make you think that the cost of your decision is lower than what it really is. You have to have a more objective view. So in the case of uh, the climate, people who are in favor or in the Bill Gates camp saying that we have to do something about this and we have to start doing it now, they're going to look at the opportunity cost of not doing something now as being huge, where somebody with different information and a different bias is going to look at those costs as being lower. And they're mm-hmm. going to say that the cost of what we're giving up is much bigger. So, you know, confirmation bias and again, incentives too are coming in here, but our confirmation bias can cause us to misjudge what the, what the true costs are. And this is where it gets difficult is when you're talking about the cost to you personally, going out with your friends or getting a better grade on the exam. And then you're talking about the cost to an entire country or an entire world, which is investing in green technology versus investing that money in building out an infrastructure or something. That's where it gets to be difficult because in that second case, there's going to be a lot of people with a lot of biases and a lot of opinions. If we don't have a better way of discussing this stuff and looking at reality in a more empirical or objective way, then we we see a lot of the fighting that goes on. Yeah. Um, well, and that was I, kind of a long rant there about opportunity. No, cost, but, but it was, yeah. but, but it, what, what came to mind was the idea, are you framing the decision correctly? It is, is really a, a core question. So yeah, we can go back to the example of the sun. The sun has unlimited energy. Okay, great. Let's start using it so that you can frame it that way, or you can frame it in the, okay, well, the sun has unlimited energy, but he only have limited resources on the earth to build the solar panels and the batteries. So if you frame it that way, then all of a sudden this looking at the sun as this unlimited resource of energy doesn't quite have the same punch Yeah, as the other direction. Well, I, so yeah. And, and I think, I, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I, well, I was going to say, I find that the there there is an emphasis that people make on specific to the green discussion, but I think there's probably a pattern we can generalize to other discussions where in this case, if you feel, I, mean, I talked about those different levels of what your belief is, you, you've looked at all the information that you can get a, your hands on. You're convinced that uh, like Bill Gates, that if we don't do anything in the next uh 10 years, that's a pretty significant investment that we're going to really, by 2050, we're going to see massive catastrophe, significant catastrophes all over the world. Many ones versus big ones, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a bad thing. There is a discussion there. If you believe that, then a lot of people say, okay, whatever we need to do, go for broke. We've, we've got to make changes. And I understand that, but there's another side of it that I'm thinking, okay, well, what are, is there a way in which we're killing multiple birds with one stone. So is there a way in which we can be decarbonizing the planet if we think that's a real issue while also creating energy security for our country, while also creating the next, the research and the know-how for the next development that we need in energy that's going to give us this next quantum leap, if you will, you know, what we need for space travel as an example. When I start asking myself those questions and layering them on, for me personally, with what I've read, there's no alternative but fusion and fission. 
it's nuclear. It's nuclear because nuclear has uh, the ability to create a lot more energy per square foot. Over time, the costs come down dramatically. It, they can theoretically, with, with with what we think we know about the way in which we can combine and and you know break apart atoms and then combine them, uh, we have in, again we talk about infinite amount of energy uh, being able to do hydrogen reactors. There's it, it it seems to me to be the obvious choice, but that's only if if I combine all these other factors together and and then I look at the problem through multiple lenses. If I simplify it down to one one question, what are we going to do to save the planet? Then perhaps I can easily discount the cost of you know because doing nuclear up front is expensive. It takes ten years to get a reactor up and running, and there's still a lot of unknowns on the technology front that we have to solve for that don't exist in the solar and the wind space. So I could easily minimize all of them, but I feel like you know understanding what the problem is, layering it on in the right way. I mean, I I feel like that's critical to be able to do an opportunity cost assessment. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're right. Depending on how you look at it and what questions you're asking, people can they're going to come up with different assessments. Like we said earlier, even if you ask everything the exact same way, people are going to come up with different assessments potentially. But then you can ask the question in different ways, present it with different considerations that are going to cause people to come up with different answers. What was that one poll where people were asked if they support universal health care and the response was like 60%, 70% supported it. But then the follow-up question is, well, what if it would cause your taxes to go up by 20% and then only like 5% or 10% of the people supported it after that? The way the question is framed or not even really the way it's framed, it's just the additional information that people are given is causing them to change the calculation of the costs. So mm-hmm. when they hear something good, like, oh, wow, free healthcare, that's going to be great. They instantly focus on the benefits without thinking about the costs. And then once somebody follows up and, and brings the costs into perspective, then the calculation changes for them. And so mm-hmm. that's what I was getting at earlier when I said that opportunity costs, it gives you a bigger picture of the situation. If you ignore the opportunity costs, you're making the decision based off of a smaller amount of information. When you incorporate opportunity costs, then you've got now more information to use to base your decision on. Then the question comes in is, how, what's the quality of that extra information? Does it come from a source that you trust? And are you looking, like you said, are you looking at the problem correctly? Are you asking the right question that is enabling Mm -hmm. you to look at the problem correctly? I I think a simple way of using this concept is if someone is, you you actually just stated it, but I'll, I'll restate it just more of a question form. If someone comes to you and says, well, don't you care about the environment? You can say yes. And they say, well, uh, we need to do solar and wind. I'm just going to use that as an example, or even nuclear. We, we have to start nuclear because I say that all the time. Ask the person, okay, what are, what's the alternative? What, what are the other alternatives that we could invest in? And what are the pros and cons of investing in those versus this one? As, as you said, Scott, you don't have to look at every, you don't have to look at an infinite scale of ideas of alternatives. You can just look at the next best one. What is the next best investment opportunity? And what are the, what is the benefit that comes from it? How does it relate back to the one that you're supporting? If you ask that time and time again, you get in the the, the mindset of realizing that you're always making a, a trade off, which is exactly what that second question on that questionnaire does. It goes from an idea of, well, you know, do you want to help people? Absolutely. Okay. Well, what if it's going to cost you an extra twenty five percent of your taxes? Now, now I'm realizing what the trade off actually is, and what you see is a, a difference in behavior. I wanted to ask you that. Do you have thoughts on how people can do a better job of incorporating thinking through opportunity costs in their own lives? Keep in mind the concept of scarcity because everything's scarce. No matter how infinite you think something is, there's still a cost to it. The second thing is to remember that 
everything has a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Even even if you think something is infinite, there's a trade-off in there somewhere. So the, again, back to the, the example of the sun, right? Even if you think energy from the sun is infinite, our ability to use it is still restrained. You have to take that step back. Or like education, if we have unlimited money for education, that's great, but then we're going to lose out on the services of some people who may go to get a college education who would have been really great plumbers or artists or electricians or you know would have brought value to the world that way. So th- this idea of unlimited abundance, this idea of everything, of, of there being a free lunch, you have to keep those two points in mind. And when you do that, to me, it just, it reframes the world. It, it, it brings the world into a better perspective. And I can see like a cause and effect type thing. I can see how my decisions are affecting others around me. There's really no good way that I can think of to really nail down the opportunity costs. Because even if you're looking at something for yourself, a lot of times when you're trying to come up with an opportunity cost, you're trying to put a value on uh, something that is vague. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how can you really put a value on the friendship and the leisure time that you get from going out with your friends and compare that on the value of getting a better grade on a, on an exam? How do you, how do you quantify that? It's really hard. So you're making a judgment. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. The whole point of the opportunity cost though is to just help you improve those judgments by acknowledging that there is a cost to what you're doing. Right. Yeah, you know, and it makes me think about short-term long-term thinking uh which very simple concept, right? In in the case of, do I go out tonight and I enjoy that tonight? That's, that's obviously short-term, you know, kind of pleasurable event versus the long-term. Okay. I have to study. Well, tomorrow's an exam. What is that going to mean for my grade that, that, uh, the final grade that I have in three months time, what does that mean for the degree that I'm going to earn? And in four, four years time, it's hard for us to think about the consequences it's much easier to react to the feeling I'm having right now, which is the desire to go out with my friends. The best I think this can do is make you realize that you're you're making an active choice. So you are a participant in the choice process. And that that means that even though you're not seeing or even considering, there's other options out there that maybe you're just ignoring, maybe you're choosing to ignore. So bearing that in mind, along with just getting into the process of thinking about the fact that there's there's some other outcome out there maybe I can't measure it but you know maybe I should just explore what that is um, maybe there's a little bit too of just this idea of this is one of the reasons that people try to build habits and behaviors that are built into habits just kind of good habits keep them away from having to make some of these choices you know we talk about on a personal level this idea of watching Netflix at night versus going for a walk or uh, eating a burger rather than a salad those are very easy decisions to make in the time because it's like, I'm tired. I just want to watch a movie or I really, f- I'm feeling stressed out. The idea of a burger feels really good. Well, those decisions compound over time and over time you've gained 10 pounds. You're going, well, what was that, man? Was it that one time I had the burger? No, it was all the time. You kind of fell into that. So it's, it's almost easier to have good behavior uh, because then that kind of keeps, uh, you're, you're making, your, your behavior is making the choice for you rather than even having to make a choice at all. Keep in mind, Bill Gates is looking out for you by trying to get you to eat salads that taste like burgers. Um, That's right. So, That's yeah. right. The, the salad burger. The salad burger. Oh, man. Trying to get that salad and compress it down into a hockey puck looking thing and making it try to taste like a burger, make it sizzle like a burger, but it's never going to be a burger. 
It's never going to be a burger. Just just don't try it. Just don't do it. Right. And you know, the, the funny thing here too is like to go meta a little bit, there's an opportunity cost to figuring out the opportunity cost because <laughs> you could end up agonizing over a decision far more than you need to. What's the opportunity cost of wearing my red hat instead of my blue hat or wearing a hat without wearing it or not wearing a hat? These are decisions that you definitely don't want to go down the rabbit hole on because you could be spending your time doing something much more productive. Right. At the end of the day, opportunity cost is, is, is just another, another tool in your toolbox to help you improve your decisions. I think it's a powerful one, and I think it's one that people don't consider it. And going back to your question, I just thought of something. Another way we can improve our conversations and improve our decision-making is if we're upfront about the costs. And I'm thinking mostly of, of politicians here who, let's just take the vaccine. You know, they say, well, you know, it's a no-brainer. Everybody's got to take the vaccine. What they really should be doing is saying, okay, here's the costs of not taking the vaccine. Here's the benefits of taking the vaccine. Here's the cost of, and then flipping it around, you know, here's the benefits of not taking the vaccine. Here's the cost of not, I don't know. Do I have those right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I know what you're the, saying. The cost right? of taking the vaccine, the benefit of taking the vaccine, the cost of not taking the vaccine, the benefit of not taking the vaccine. And just be honest with everybody about that instead of trying to create right. this world of panic where we're going to degenerate into some sort of dystopian, zombie-infested future if everyone doesn't run out and do exactly what the government tells us to do right now. <laughs> Are you sure you haven't seen zombies today? I thought I saw some. Well, I, I kind of feel like a zombie, but <laughs> maybe. Yeah, no kidding. And maybe that that's a, the first step because, you know, it, you talk about people not trusting the government. I think that's probably a big part of the reason why the people aren't trusting the government is they're not being honest about the cost and benefit analysis of these decisions. They're just saying, go do it. And the idea of don't do your own research, that's, that's exactly what they're telling you to do. They're saying, no, don't think about this. Don't consider the costs and the benefits. We did all of that. You go out and just do what we told you to. Sorry, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, our entire podcast is built on not doing that. It's it's built on <laughs> trying to give people the tools to start doing their own research and coming up right. with their own opinions. Absolutely. It's laughable the direction that we're going where, you know, first it was the New York Times article about doing critical thinking without really doing critical thinking. Mm -hmm. trying to subtly shift the definition of critical thinking there. And now they're just flat out telling us now, don't, don't, don't waste your time doing the research. Just go binge watch Netflix. When there's something we need you to do, we'll get one of the CNN talking heads to bust in in the middle of Netflix and tell you to, to go out and get a shot or something. And then, you know, everybody can go back to being happy. That's right. Maybe that's the world we need to live in. I don't know. Maybe it'll be better. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe if we maybe can just hurry up wrong. and get, yeah, hurry up and get the Soma drips going and, and we'll all just be happier. You know, you mentioned the idea of uh, the honesty and, and the, uh, the the opportunity cost of being honest. There Sometimes it's it's a lot higher than, than we even realize. And, and with uh, trust and maintaining trust or losing trust, uh, the cost is, is almost incalculable, right? And I think back to what you're saying, just the... I would say the communication across COVID, not just uh, relative to the United States, across multiple countries, geographies, they've done an awful job of explaining what they're doing and why they're doing it and what what variables came into play and how they came into play for that policy. Or, or when something changes, they don't say, oh, we got that wrong, but we're going to fix right. it now. They, they just say that, well, the science changed. Right. The virus changed. No, we were right. The virus. It's the science and the virus that changed. The, yeah. The virus changed. And the 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 cost of that is that you have a population, uh, not just in the United States, again, across the globe, that is 
lacking trust in the authorities that are responsible for laying out the strategy and the plan. And so now, just as your bad decisions on your diet can compound, we have a trust deficit that's compounding. I don't think it's growing exponentially uh, because I think it's already quite high, but it's going to create more challenges for them to even if they could act as leaders and to deploy strategies. And, you know, there, it reminds me of this uh, story that I heard. I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the conversation between Lex Friedman and Douglas Leonard. And he talked about how his daughter had a disease at a very young age and he went and spoke to multiple doctors. Uh, so he obviously got mul- several opinions about her disease and what, what her uh, diagnosis was. And he didn't feel comfortable with any of the information. I, I think the words he said is he never got a satisfactory explanation of why they were making the recommendations that they were, which I, I think could either have drastic side effects or put her his daughter's life at risk. And so he fortunately had a co-worker working in a different division who was also doing artificial intelligence research who happened to be working on a tool for making recommendations, medical recommendations. So they ran his daughter's test labs, you know, all of her data through this computer and the computer came up with a recommendation. And the biggest difference was that he was able to see the logic steps, which were, he said, 24, 25 different steps that it had gone through to explain where it was coming from. The story is interesting in that it speaks to the fact that humans like explanation. And I think some of it has to do with the concept of reactance, which is our desire to re- or our emotion that wants to react when we feel like our freedoms are inhibited. And I think it's also part of our evolutionary makeup where we're accustomed to stories, stories connected have a logical progression through them. We, we don't tend to like stories that have no, that are nonsensical or have no meaning, right? It doesn't sit in our heads very well. If, it, if there aren't some kind of loss. To bring it all around, I, I realize this probably manners a little bit, but it's the idea that if you start off knowing the basics of psychology and how humans are going to react, that you have some part of the population that's going to react in, in one way, shape, or form, the cost of getting it wrong with them is relatively low. The cost of, of getting it wrong with the other population is actually quite high, and you need to calculate that into your opportunity cost, your calculus. What is the cost of actually not just, um, you know, what is our next best option, and what is it if we really don't get it right? Because the next time we have to come back to it, it's going to be even harder. That's kind of the story that, that came to mind with with this one, which just, he talked to many doctors probably at the top of the league. I mean, he went to Stanford and I think to, to some other Ivy. He's talking to doctors at the forefront, right? So it's not, he's expecting them to be the experts and to have the right answers. He still doesn't like what they're saying. You have to, how you evaluate and how you execute matter. Maybe if, I feel like we talk about COVID every episode, I guess, because it's just so relevant, but going back to the beginning of this thing, if someone had just sat down and said, okay, if we tell the public X, and we get it wrong, whether we do it honestly and we're just mistaking or whether we intentionally lie to them, if we're wrong and that, that comes out, it's going to destroy the trust that the public has in us. So then yeah. getting them to do anything else after that is going to be very difficult. I wonder if anyone <laughs> sat down and did that analysis early on. I mean, I'm sure someone did. It's amazing to me that you have someone like Fauci publicly saying, well, yeah, I lied to you, but that's just because I wanted you to do some particular thing. And I didn't think you would do it if I told you the truth. And then wondering why no one wants to listen to him. Right. Question Fauci. You're questioning science. And the answer is simple. It's like, Dr. Fauci, you know, you're supposed to be a smart guy and you didn't sit down and think about the cost of doing what you did. And I guess that goes to show that, you know, even the smartest people 
And I figure, you know, Fauci, I'm not going to be one of those people who says he's stupid. I mean, he, he's got these credentials in this job somehow. He sure. can't be the stupidest yeah. person in the world. Even a guy like that is not smart enough to think of the cost of his actions. Yeah. Well, and and I, I would go a little bit further. And, and I realize we're talking about opportunity cost here, but there's some richness in some of these other concepts. What you see is a lack of understanding of basic human psychology uh, that seems to exist at these at these top levels. And what's interesting, it's across multiple government bodies, right? Um, you think back to in the 20th century about fireside chats, about people sitting next to the radio and listening to their leader as he was talking to them about what was going on. There was this concept of, I needed to be able to communicate with these people in a relatable way. Uh, even Hitler, I, I've been doing some research recently um, for a separate study, but I was fascinated by he was working on getting uh, radios into the hands of all of his people, uh, all the citizens, and he he did free giveaways of radios so he could speak to them on a regular basis. He's a psychopath who who's probably one of the worst people in all of history and will continue and always will be for the horrible atrocities he committed. He had a better appreciation for human psychology than I think many people that are more benevolent who are actually trying to help people because it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking it's a it's an issue of stupidity and competence when as you noted a lot of people are incompetent in a lot of different ways right you can you can be very knowledgeable in the science but if you know we talk about this idea of bedside manner if you can't communicate to your patient then what have you really accomplished you've only you've actually only done part of the work which was to try and uh, reason out what what the actual issue is rather than actually creating a cure so i see that it, to me it seems to be a pattern where the population is, and, and the leadership is moving in this area. It's like, well, we know better. They're supposed to trust us. Therefore, what we decree needs to be accepted rather than this idea of, no, that's that's not the case at all. You need to be speaking to people differently. You need to communicate with the public. Yes, they are scared. They're terrified. They're being told that this this virus that came from who knows where, we still don't have the origins of, it could kill everyone, you and your family. You're going to kill your grandmother. They're missing some of that, which again, you know, you, there's a, there's an opportunity cost there to actually show leadership. And you know, I'll, I'll bring that back to this idea, of just specific to opportunity cost. I've and I mentioned this earlier on. I've played these mind games in my head, and, and you know, Afghanistan just we just ended our, our engagement in Afghanistan. The numbers that we've invested there and spent there are staggering. I think it's something like two trillion dollars. Let's go back and ask ourselves, okay, what if we had invested, you know, from two thousand one. $2 trillion in building up our in energy infrastructure. I mean, that's just the question I have. What if after the collapse in the economy in 2009, Obama had invested and said, okay, instead of just getting our, our economy up and running on uh, fixing the banks and the financial system, we're going to see what it is to create the next advancements that we need to prolong our economy, to, to be the leader in, in technology, which is the only real path to abundance. It's not MMT. And then you know, I look at what just happened with COVID. I mean, the questions I'm having right now are, what are we doing to, you know, they talk about the prevention of the next COVID. It's it's being ahead of the, all of that, right? So what's the opportunity? I mean, the opportunity cost of shutting down our economies and shutting down people's lives to stop the spread of a virus, which had unknown vectors. Now where we are today, where I feel like we're still not talking about what it is to get ahead of whatever's coming next. And the ability to today, I was hearing a story that in 2018, hospitals were overwhelmed by the flu. 
not by COVID, but the story sounded very similar where they had no ICU beds. They had no beds in general. And so we have an entire country, which is just in time delivery of everything. So we're overwhelmed. Where is the opportunity of investing in new capabilities to deliver at times like this? Every crisis presents an opportunity and it feels like it's always being squandered by our leaders uh, for political reasons. And I said in the last 20 years, suppose you could go back longer than that and see that, but I feel like it's really acute today. Um, so opportunity costs matter. And, you know, again, I think the examples I laid out, they're how I think about it. And, and they're, they're pretty powerful. It's actually pretty disturbing when you think about how much we could have done differently, where the money could have been, been invested. And we didn't learn. The hospital bed thing is really interesting because one reason why we're in the situation we are is because the government regulates the number of hospital beds that are available. If a hospital wants to open up, they have to go around to all the other hospitals and say, yeah, we agree. We need another hospital. And so, so it's the government interfering in the market is limiting the number of beds that are available. And in that time, in the last year, have you heard anything about the government easing those rules and allowing more beds to get put into rotation? No, they're not. Right. And you're hearing stories now that it's it's not just lack of beds, but it's lack of staff because people are quitting because they don't want to get the vaccine. And, and fatigue and depression. Yeah. You know, the people who last year, they were heroes for dealing with all this are now be, being threatened with getting losing their jobs because they don't want to get the vaccine. Right. You know, and these are people in the healthcare industry who ostensibly are supposed to be some have some level of expertise in this stuff are choosing to not get it. Another constraint that's being put on the healthcare system is again being caused by the government, by the government mandating these <laughs> vaccines. And then they want to sit back and act like none of this is of their doing. This really doesn't have much to do with opportunity costs. I just wanted to throw that out there. But th let's look at this. When we were doing the research, when we were doing the Bill Gates book, and we were, I was researching that, I, I ran across something where Melinda Gates had done an interview with like New York Magazine or the New York Times or something. And she said, and there was a quote from her, we didn't consider the economic impact of the, of the lockdowns. So right there, you have someone saying, someone who is in charge or someone at a high level in this entire thing, admitting that they did not consider the opportunity costs of their decisions. How much hubris is that? Especially since there was already reports out there from the WHO and the CDC in, in years prior saying that lockdowns are not a way that you combat a virus. And then right. they just suddenly decided that they're going to ignore all that. And anyone who bothered to say, no, this is a bad idea get silenced and called a conspiracy theorist and sidelined and marginalized. Well, guess what? Your your hubris put us in a pretty bad spot. Good job, folks. <laughs> and and I think that is the that is the perfect example that's modern that we can all latch on to. We've all been impacted by this virus. We all know the the pain it's caused and we all know that uh, even even at the best of times our leaders are trying to that's that's give them the benefit of the doubt. They may not be making the same uh, considerations, and they may not be including the right opportunity costs. Which means that we need to be keeping our minds sharp and asking those questions uh, when it comes to our leaders. And then, obviously, as we've said, even on a personal level, you got to be applying these opportunity costs to your life because um, you know if you're gaining a few pounds because you're eating too many cheeseburgers, you're missing out on the opportunity to be a little thinner and maybe I don't know run an extra mile or two. You're missing so, out on those wonderful Impossible Burgers. That's right. right? <laughs> impossible Burgers. Well, I, kn I know we went in a couple different directions here, but I, I enjoyed the conversation. It it's an interesting concept, and I, I think it needs to be used by more people more often. But Scott, do you think we missed anything specific to opportunity costs that you want to share before we wrap this up? No. The direction that the 
conversation went just illustrates how much these models all intertwine with each other. Because we started off talking about opportunity cost and we talked ended up talking about a lot of others. Understanding this, it may seem confusing, but when you start taking the time to pay attention and to try and apply these models to your decisions and to what you're seeing other people do, it'll start to make more sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for uh, for joining in and listening in to the latest episode. And uh, wherever you are, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at mentallyunscripted.com uh, where we have all of our episodes. And then wherever you are listening, if it's on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, uh, please leave a comment, leave us a rating, let us know your thoughts. Uh, we'd love to, um, just any feedback you have of topics you think we, we need to cover, uh, maybe points we're missing, uh, that you think are relevant to the discussion. All of that is is welcome feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we hope you are now going to start thinking about the opportunity costs in your own life and how you can apply them. And um, until the next time, take care. Well, that will do it for this episode of Mentally Unscripted. But hey, you're one step closer to kicking all this tribal garbage peddled by the politicians and the media to the side and seeing the world for what it really is with intelligence and rationality. Take care.